Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. So people who know me well know that some parts of my brain are missing. For example, without my GPS, I'm lost. I started a graduate program in the days before GPSs, so I wrote the directions to OSU on an index card, and it took me two years of twice-a-week classes to get my way to OSU from London, Ohio without that index card. My grandchildren learned to watch the road young. Uh, they take the lead in the parking lots. This way, Grandma, they say. So directions for me are missing, and so is money. Now, I understand money concepts like compound interest and liquidity and the bull market and the bear market, and I like math, but a gallon of milk, I cannot remember how much it should cost or hamburger, or a tank of gas. I don't know a good deal or a bad deal when I see one. Now, I've earned plenty of money in my life, but every check I make lands on Steve's desk, and I don't even notice if I'm getting a raise or not. So, imagine my consternation when I get an email from Matt Showalter would you be available to speak in chapel on April 6th, he wrote. Your assigned topic would be James 5, 1 through 6. Don't let that be the part about the money, I thought. So I looked, and it was. <laughs> so if you want me to stop right now, Matt. <laughs> so I read it, and I read it again and I read it again. This is about money, I thought, but it's about more than money. It's about life. It's even about what I did with some maple syrup. Now, one of my favorite childhood haunts was the sugar camp. All winter, I'd wait for sugaring. Wet winds would blow in from Lake Erie and the Ohio Valley. And when those winds climbed up the mountains of Western Maryland, where I lived, those mountains would wring out the, the winds like a rag, turning that moisture into snow, an average of 100 inches in a year. But I could tell when winter was wearing down. My grandpa would start tinkering around in the sugar camp. He'd gather the spiles that pierced the trees. He'd wash the keelers that gathered the sap, and he'd fire up the evaporator. And soon I'd be trailing along behind him under those maples as he harvested the first crop of the year. Sap, I discovered when I sneaked a bit of the clear liquid, tastes almost like water, but the sweetness had to be in there somewhere. I knew this from the maple candy my grandmother made by pouring maple syrup in a clean bed of snow. 
I knew this by the sweetness in the taffy that we pulled with buttered hands until it turned satiny and held its shape. And I knew this by the sweetness in the golden river of syrup that I'd mop up with my pancakes. But between the sap and the syrup, there's a whole lot of boiling down. It takes, after all, 40 gallons of sap to produce one gallon of syrup. So from the vats of this bubbling sap, clouds of steam rose into a chilly spring air taking away what wasn't wanted and leaving only what was sweet and good and golden. Once when I was a poor married college student, my grandfather gave me a half gallon of this golden goodness. So I took it home and I saved it for a special occasion. And then my grandpa died. And suddenly there was no occasion that seemed special enough to open that maple syrup. We served pancakes to out-of-town guests, but I served Mrs. Butterworth's original. And on Christmas morning, I served Mrs. Butterworth's. And on Christmas morning again, the next year, I kept not opening my grandpa's maple syrup for a long time long time. And when I did, it was full, and I mean full, of a funky hair-like mold, and it smelled bad. Now, standing here looking at you all, it's easy for me to feel that I'm probably alone in this. You all look like generous people, not people who would hoard maple syrup. If I came to your house for pancakes, I bet I wouldn't get Mrs. Butterworth, at least if you had a sap-boiling grandpa. I think this, except that I've lived for a very long time, and I've talked with lots of people who have told me how they have clutched to themselves what's meant to share. And I've talked to people whose identities have been marred by the grind of being poor in some way. Not enough food or influence or support in developing gifts. People who have felt captive to the non-poor, to the rich. I've taught these people in a state prison and at a parent education program, and at a middle school. I've talked with these people in churches. You know, most of us live with a scarcity outlook, that there's only so much to go around, that we gotta fight for our share, we tell ourselves, and hang on to what we've got. So we clutch our money and our time and our friends, and our reputations, and our influences. We don't share our wealth, pour out our maple syrup. Now, perhaps it'll bring you some comfort to know that this isn't new sin. Apparently, the early church Christians wallowed around in this. 
At least it seems so when we read this passage in James 5. This passage isn't an easy passage to hear. It's not a passage that brings comfort, at least not in the short term. It's a kind of passage that reminds me of the way basketball coaches talk to my grandsons at games when the team is losing. It's a scolding sort of you better get with it passage. But it's our passage, it's the one Matt assigned. So sit up straight and take it like the grown-ups you are becoming. Let's read it. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, the day of feasting. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. In the Columbus Museum of Art, where I lead tours, you can find this painting. It's big, it's life-size, and the artist, Lokes, puts you in this painting. Well, not exactly you, but the human soul symbolized by a butterfly. Can you see it flitting above the roses in the center, in the air between the carnage on the table and the outside light? That butterfly represents your soul. You know, what was on that table was once cool, really cool, richly draped linens and goblets, food and artifacts from all over the world. And all four seasons are represented there at one time, summer and fall fruit, a winter pastry a, and spring flowers. What a party it once was. Now, I don't know if Lokes had James 5, one to six in front of him when he painted this still life, but he might as well have. Here's how James writes it. Wealth, clothing, gold, silver, wages you failed to pay and kept, luxury, self-indulgence, feasting. You had more than you could use and you kept it. Now, maybe you don't know this after party feeling when you ate too much and drank too much and gossiped your fill and spent too much money and used too much raucous humor when you ended the evening so satiated that you felt sick. That's what 
opulence, having lots of everything all at once, does. And Lokes shows this. The lobster here is decaying. The music is silenced. Fruit browning, flowers fading, linens stained, and light dimming. And we could go deeper. The lobster here reps, represents sensuality. After all, lobsters can taste with their legs and their feet. And lobsters symbolize self-protection, hanging on to what you've got, making sure that even though you don't need it all, nobody else gets it, even if the excess makes you sick. Here's how James describes this. Miserable, rotten, moth-eaten, corroded. What's earthly, James writes and Lokes shows, is that what is earthly disintegrates. It rots away. Now, if you paid attention to James's audience here, you might think that you have a pass on this scolding. He's writing to rich people. But what if you read the word rich a different way, a way that its Greek meaning implies well-resourced people? This changes things. This room is full of re well-resourced people. I know many of you. In this room are musicians and wordsmiths and artists and athletes. Some of you have social graces and inner understandings. Here among us are people whose minds can critique and create. Sitting here are people with privilege, strong family and church support. You are well resourced. You are rich. And James gives you a charge. Don't be rich and wretched. If you take your resources and you use them to live on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence, if you fatten yourself in the day of feasting, James is saying, you will be miserable. You'll hurt yourself. But there's more. You'll also hurt others. Mowing fields, the passage says. Who's mowing your fields? Look at this quote from Janice Holt Giles. Nothing is for free. Wool, cotton, meat, vegetables, metal, lumber, cars, radios, the list is endless. Nothing is for free. Back of all of them is a great toiling world, toiling for necessities, for commodities, for luxuries. Whatever comes to each of us in material things has back of it the toil and labor of hundreds of people. And it's not just material things. Back of the most outgoing, charming, big splash person on this campus 
are people who listen to this person quietly, who affirm and smile and nod at just the right places. These people are mowing a field. Back of the most intellectual student in this room are people who help that student stay on an even emotional keel. These people are mowing a field. And when mowers are taken for granted, not honored, not paid, their cries reach the ears of God. When you feast without including the harvesters, you condemn them. You murder their personhoods. And God is serious about this. Weep and wail, the scripture says to the clutching rich. You've made the harvesters cry. You make someone else cry, the text seems to be saying, and I give you something to cry about. Just a few galleries down from Loke's feasting painting at the Museum of Art is a painting about another feast. Joseph Hirsch painted Supper in the early 1960s. People who are not accustomed to linen tablecloths and goblets have been invited to this table. Sometimes I see museum visitors stand in front of this painting and count. And when they get to 12, they smile and nod. Jesus, they remember, called 12 workers to his table. And when I see this painting, I remember Isaiah's words about the Lord Almighty preparing a feast in heaven a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. God sharing his riches with us. Someday, some of you will run businesses, controlling profits and wages and the benefits of others. Will you be willing to reduce your own profits in order to pay just and generous wages, to create workplaces of dignity and purpose for the mowers and the harvesters in your fields. Someday, some of you will have great influence in your communities and churches. Will you be willing to listen, really listen to the field workers to learn from them, to lament your own sins of oppression and the oppression in the systems around you, to lead toward justice. Someday, some of you will have developed remarkable talents and skills. Will you be willing to recognize the people who have harvested so that you can eat and grow? And will you be willing to give back, to use your time and talent to make way for the people following behind you on the journey? But don't wait for someday. You see the butterfly on the painting, the one that represents your soul? Right now, here at RBC, 
you are forming the patterns of your soul. Are you going to gorge on excesses or are you going to fly away from misery toward the light? If you are smart, help someone else study for a test. If you're the life of the party, draw someone else into the party. If you're the best basketball player on the court, make an assist, throw a pass so someone else can shoot a basket. You know what happened when I clutched my grandpa's maple syrup? Nobody else got any of that golden goodness, that's for sure. But then, neither did I. They lost, and I lost. And you know what else? There's a tension. There's always a tension between what we want to do and what we are called to do. James here is not calling you into misery. He's calling you away from it, away from a bloated, overindulgent, opulent wretchedness, away from what rots and corrodes and eats your flesh like fire, away from weeping and wailing, away from murdering innocent people who weren't opposing you anyway. He calls you to life and to bring life to others to their spirits and emotions and bodies and relationships and minds. And he's calling you to travel light, to let go of what weighs you down. What if we all did this together? What if we all cast our riches before each other? And what if we shared beyond our own circles? What if we recognize that the mowers and the harvesters need a place at the table? And what if we recognize that sharing a table with mowers and harvesters brings good to us? In heaven, we're all going to be together at a feast, a feast for all peoples, a feast with the best of meats and the finest of wines. But until then, Let's pray what Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'd like us to pray together a prayer about a bit of heaven coming to earth, about eating in a daily kind of a way, a prayer begging forgiveness because we don't always follow the kingdom way of living, a prayer asking God to deliver us from the misery of evil. And with this prayer, we'll acknowledge that we accept this teaching of James. So let's use the words on the screen to pray out loud and together. So pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever. Amen. Now, you know what? I really don't like giving scoldings. I'd much rather tell you all the good things that I've seen you doing, uh, but it's Matt's fault, and it's James's fault, and it's God's fault, and to sweeten the, the scolding just a little bit, and also to make some penance for my lack of sharing maple syrup before, you'll find some little containers of maple syrup over there, just enough to give yourself a taste of golden goodness straight from the trees. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.